kids love toys. They hold it in their hands. It's real. Has a purpose. They give it life in their imagination, and you can see how physical computing taps on that. In many of our activities, we build something that looks like a toy, maybe a little pet. Then we use code and we use maybe the lights that we have on the microcontroller to give life to that virtual, that real pet. So, for example, if you wiggle it, then your virtual cat starts to meow, right, or it starts to show a happy face. So it is. In a sense, very real for the children. You're listening to the Microsoft Research Podcast, a show that brings you closer to the cutting edge of technology research and the scientists behind it. I'm your host, Gretchen Huizinga. If you've ever wondered if you could find the perfect combination of computer scientists and MacGyver, look no further than Dr. Peli Dualo, Principal Research Software Design Engineer at Microsoft Research. A key member of the MSR Rise or Research in Software Engineering Group, Pelly is part of the Make Code Initiative that brings physical computing to classrooms around the country and around the world. Today, Pelly talks about the maker movement in K-12 education, the hard work that goes on behind the scenes to deliver a seamless user experience for both kids and teachers, and how to get children excited about coding through hands-on experience in early computer science education. That and much more on this episode of the Microsoft Research Podcast. So you and I share a difficult to pronounce last name. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> how do you say your name? My last name is Dualu. Dualu. Yeah. Dualu. Yeah, that nasal sound. Pretty I like hard. I've received every possible pronunciation back. <laughs> yeah, and spelling, I bet. Listen, several of the researchers we've had on this podcast have talked about an aha moment in their own lives where they said, hey, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. Did you have one? And if you did, what was it? Well, I'm from the, you know, the 8-bit computer generation. So I had a Commodore computer and played a lot of games on it. I had to type them. So the, my first programming experience was just writing a loop there, I think it was saying something like poop in the loop. But surprisingly, <laughs> in now high school, an emoji. I learned WordPerfect and I learned how to like automate, you know, like this whole, you could put names in things and print 500 times on the same page. And I really like the fact that it automates stuff. So I was programming as uh, really a Word document. And I really dig that. But I, I really got seriously into coding in college. Before that, it was mostly small time hacking of games. And yeah. so from there to Microsoft Research, what was your path? I did a PhD in applied math in, in previous life. And then I got in contact with people in Microsoft and I got a job as a tester in the .NET runtime. I was two years a tester for the just-in-time compiler. So that's the thing that takes .NET bytecode and turns to assembly. And then, uh, you know, from meeting other people, I got sucked in into uh, working on a testing tool called PEX in, in RISE. PEX was a white box test generation tool that uses something really cool called dynamic symbolic execution, and it is still available for Visual Studio. And then finally, my colleague said, oh, you know, we, it's hard to demo this thing. Let's put a web front end to it. And my colleague, Nikolai Tillman, is the one who started the project. So we, we did that, and then a collaborator, Tao Xie, said, oh, uh, you should make it a game. Like, People have to figure out the code. They don't have to test it. So we did that too. And then surprisingly, 
People like the game. Yeah. <laughs> they played the game a lot. Some people like puzzles. This is the ultimate puzzle. You have to reverse engineer a programming function that might be very complicated. And that's how I think from one step to the other, we ended up in education. So you're in RISE, Research in Software Engineering at Microsoft Research. What kind of research do you do? Currently, I'm working on building code editors for beginners, for kids, around physical computing, so around teaching computer science, around building things and programming physical stuff. But RISE does a lot of things. I'm just one aspect of the group. Much of your recent work is in what you call the maker space. The maker space, What yes. do you mean by that? It's kind of a buzzword right now. The maker movement, you know, it is a movement, and there's things called Maker Fair and Make Magazine. You know, it's allowing people to build things. You can build it and kind of celebrating making things and using any kind of technology, whether it's old things like forgery or cutting wood or mixing new technologies, mixing 3D printing and art and painting. I think the maker movement doesn't really care about how you build things. There is certainly a trend where because microcontrollers are easier to program, there's more of these kind of technology that is being accessible to non-professional developers, right? And that's one of the aspects of the maker movement. So how is Microsoft Research involved in that movement? The physical computing kind of taps straight into the maker movement. We enable it. We enable it because we lower the barrier of entry in terms of programming, making things that leverage microcontrollers and coding. So you don't need to learn an advanced language like, you know, C++, you can use drag and drop programming just like you do in, you know, in the hour of code, for example. Well, talk about physical computing for a minute. What do you know about it? What do you do with it? How do you... Right. It's a mouthful of physical computing. What is it? We uh, use small microcontrollers, so little computers, think about the size of a watch, that you can program, and we allow the kids to use code to build things. So these little computers have sensors that can detect maybe movements or lights or sound, and they have outputs. So they have like lights or they can do sound or they can start actuating motors. But you build actually physical things because it's a real tangible, something you can touch. So that's why it's called physical computing. Okay, so you told me it was important for kids to interact with a physical object in addition to or before they code it to animate it or give it life. Right. So that that's the master plan. Kids love toys. They hold it in their hands. It's real. has a purpose. They give it life in their imagination. And you can see how physical computing taps on that. In many of our activities, we build something that looks like a toy, maybe a little pet uh, out of cardboard. Then we use code and we use maybe the lights that we have on the microcontroller to give life to that virtual, that real pet. So, for example, if we wiggle it, then your virtual cat starts to meow, right? Or it starts to show a happy face. So it is, in a sense, very real for the children. That's awesome. So on your shelves in your lab, I saw electric guitars. I saw light-sensitive robots, monsters even. I saw soil sensors. These are all things that happened in a classroom. Talk about your experiences that are happening with physical computing in the classroom. So what we're seeing with physical computing is that it's easy to um, build projects that are meaningful for students. Hmm. They are real projects. The range of projects you can address by building physical things is very large because yeah. it is reality. You know, the example I like to mention is 
medical devices where students want to help their grandparents who, you know, detect when they fall is a, is a classic one. That's the kind of stuff you can build with microcontrollers. The kids who like sports, you can do sports-oriented things. The kids who like fashion, you can do lights. There's a wide range of interests that we know kids have that we can address. The other thing that's really interesting with physical computing is the infinite level of customization can apply to them. And it's very important for students to own what they're building, to feel like that's theirs. And if you're following too many instructions, you know, you have the same thing as your neighbor on the left and the right. It doesn't feel like you've, you've learned yours. or built anything. Yeah. If, if you build a cardboard robot and you decide it's a dragon and your neighbor it's a cat and the other one it's a pizza, you've kind of got your interests. You're in full learning mode yeah. when, it gets to the, when it gets to the coding part. So what I'm hearing is this domain-led, which is a more technical way of saying making it your own, but you, you find the interest level of the maker, the kid, the developer, whatever, and then you bring in the computing and the coding and so on. We make it so that the computing is friction-free, so it's not a pain to be brought in. And in a sense, it's seamless, and you want to bring it in. If anytime you're going to add friction to, to something, people are, are going to say, it's, no, it's too complicated. I won't do it next time and so forth. Giving life to these microcontrollers and these robots has to be so seamless that any teacher is going to say, I'm going to take a chance and, you know, and do it, although I'm not an expert here. So talk about the technology that goes on behind that so that it comes into the situation seamlessly. So at the hardware level, we have these new boards that are full of sensors. So that's the hardware part. At the software side, we need software that is adapted to today's you know, 21st century classroom. So we have browser-based code editors. These are completely cross-platform. They will work in diverse environments. Schools may have deployments of Windows machines and maybe some iPads and Chromebooks and whatever came in the middle. So it's, it's very diverse. So we do all cross-platform. We work offline in case your Wi-Fi is really not good. And also we have developed bootloaders and new file system to be able to flash a device via drag and drop. And that starts the reflashing process. So these boards only run one program. They run the latest program you flash it on. And this kind of unlocks the K-12 world. That leads into a really good question about physical computing for everyone. Yeah, it's been going on for a while on Microsoft Research. The first project I know of was Gadgeteer by Steve Hodges. And they had a, you know, a module system and they had a coding experience in C-Sharp and Visual Studio. And then we got the opportunity to work with the BBC to help deliver the microbit. And we tweaked TouchDevelop to support the microbit, but we also built an editor based on Blockly. So the typical drag and drop blocks you would use when you're using the ARF code or Scratch, they, they feel the same way. So there's been quite a bit of activities in MSR around physical computing for a good while. What are you guys doing here in terms of broad thinking on inspiring creativity in computer science? With physical computing and in most of our resources in MakeCode, we first make something. And we make something because that thing is going to be, in a sense, custom for every kid. When we do a virtual toy or a pet or an instrument, there is a high level of customization. Duct tape pencils, whatever they have in their hands. And MacGyvering kids are, it. Right. I mean, kids are really good at crafting. They love that. That means they own the device. The device has a, a life on its own, on their eyes. It has a personality. 
and then it's much more meaningful for them to start working on programming it so that's in a sense what you get for free when you're building physical things is that there's this whole crafting thing that people typically love to do back to the maker back to the maker yes yeah that does seem like a good approach is to get kids making things and then seeing how what the possibilities are with computer science. So in the making, what's interesting is, you know, we call it physical computing and certainly coding is a big aspect of that. But what you quickly discover is that in the making kind of ecosystem, there's, you know, some kids are really interested in coding. Uh, some of them are really designers. They, they love to design the hardware. They're not so much interested in it about the rest. Or they like to design the experience, but they don't really like to implement it. Or they like that it looks good. Like the colors are going to be very important. And you know, it, it may show them that there is a space for them as a designer and has, you know, a graphic artist in the technology stack where it's not just code monkeys. It's not just developers. We need designers we need, you know, great graphic artists, user experience designers and things like that. And building real things and you build them in a team as well. You Working as a team is inherent when you need four hands to do something, you're going to work as a team. Right. You know, that reminds me uh, that we discussed the wide range of interests and occupations where you could find a place in high tech. And you mentioned sports, medicine, fashion, games, toys, hardware, all in the context of software engineering. So talk about where you could bring in these other interests and still find a place in high tech. Let's say I want to pique the interest of some students and I know they're high into sports then I'll make a lesson around using an accelerometer sensor to detect, let's say, how many steps they've done or, you know, how many Gs they took when they took this sack in football and, or, you know, how many times you can juggle with the ball before the ball falls, for example. Huh. But you tap into their passion, passion is sports. If you're a natural born medic, you know, you love to help people. Uh, and we see that in many students when we do a test. You probably want to build a medical device. And a medical device that we had a girl who tracked the water intake per day because some people forget to drink. So they need to be reminded to drink a few times a day. Uh, but that was directly, like her instinct was to, to build an, a device that would help uh, other people. Some kids love games, so they're going to build games. There's always those ones. And then uh, some students, music, you know, sounds was great. So, you know, because technology is going into every aspect of life today, we yeah. can use that to really excite kids about it by just tapping into their interest. Talk a little bit about the beginnings of Touch Develop. How did that come about as an idea? Uh, Nikolai Tillman, which was also in the Rise Group, you know, he got a phone like everybody else when the iPhone uh, came out. And after two weeks, he rushed into the manager's office because he had downloaded all the apps and he was bored and said, we need to be able to program this thing. Uh, and we're all a generation that learned to code on Commodores and 8-bit computers. And he's like, we need to bring back the joy of programming of 8-bit computers to phones. And I think everybody turned their head and said like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. We should totally be able to do that since the hardware specs are much better than what we had back in those days. In our case, with Touch Develop, we were like, we want to be able to code on a phone, for example. And the experience has to be good, even if you're just holding it with one hand and using one finger. So the better experience was, you know, writing text the way you've been writing text on a 
something that's designed to have a keyboard with 102 keys right. is not going to work when you don't have keys and you just have a touchscreen. So you're not really leveraging the new specificities of the you know modern phone hardware. So that, that just uh, actually sounds exciting. That it, is, was, would... it was an exciting time. Well, so talk about how touch develop played out then after the idea came, it got pitched here in Microsoft Research, and everyone said, hey, great idea, let's go. What happened? So uh, we grew, and then we used it to develop new ideas around distributed computing, maybe interfaces on the code. We, I know we do publish these results uh, as we go. We were uh, an early you know, adopter doing the R of Code. We did the R of Code when, when it came out. With Code.org. Uh, with Code.org. So we explored how far you could go with a phone-only experience. Then we expanded to all computers. So there were interesting questions like programming on multiple devices at the same time. So handling you know, what happens when you program on these devices that are on and off in the school setting. How do you handle multiple screen size and a unified coding experience around that. Ultimately, TouchDevop got us into the physical computing. So we had done some experiment with Lego NXT, but then we uh, started working on the BBC Microbit. Talk a little bit about the Microbit for a second, because that device is packed. Right. The Microbit was piloted by the BBC. They have a, a research department too, and they went through four or five prototypes, I think. And so they prototyped hardware. They dis- you know, discovered that a screen was very important and buttons were cool and things like that. So they did user research, what's the best age to kind of introduce this kind of tech and things like that. And then uh, when they wanted to go big, because the plan was to give a microbit to every student in the UK, every year, seven students, so every 11-year-old. So at that point, they they did a call for partners, uh, and then anybody who wanted to help could join the party. Talk to me about MakeCode a little more. That's the big thing that's happening right now in the school setting. How did that evolve out of other things that you were doing in research and what's it doing now? MakeCode is a direct evolution of TouchDevop, then TouchDevop for Microbit. We did a full rewrite uh, and then we started working with developer division here, which is the same division that does Visual Studio. We got a team of engineers and started making it a real product. We are all open source on GitHub and we started working with companies to help them bring their microcontrollers to uh, to the market. So we're working with the foundation, of course. The Microbit Foundation. Yes, but we also work with Adafruit and others. And so what do you do with the schools now with MakeCode? So a school today uh, with MakeCode can do Minecraft programming, and they can do the Adafruit Circle Playground. They can do the Chibitronics Chibi Chip. They can also do the C, the Grove Zero uh, board. And there's a few others in the pipeline, but uh, that's those are the ones that are, are you, current. Is your group typically present, or is this like log on and go to the teachers? Yeah, mostly it's log on and go. We do some user testing where we you know follow a class for a week. Mm-hmm. So we have regular user testing around that. Otherwise, it is used worldwide. We see the tweets coming back from the teachers when uh, they uh, publish their micropets, you know, micropets is our first lesson on the microbit course. Yeah. And typically teachers are really impressed by what the kids come up. So we see some pictures uh, popping up on Twitter. 
your audience has been professional developers and that you've now moved into the end users who are not programmers and beginning programmers often in school situations. It seems like there's a push to evangelize the programming world. This shift happened really when we started doing touch develop. So traditionally, Microsoft would sell Visual Studio or not they have Visual Studio Code, which are you know, pro-grade IDEs. So even if you understand what IDE means, you're a pro. Uh, so they are professional code editors, and they are for an audience of professional developers, and are, or at least people are serious about coding. When we started doing touch develop, we basically ended up being an app, and apps are downloaded by regular consumers who may have zero experience around coding. So obviously, you know, children have phones, so they would be our at least teens have phone. We like an interesting audience to to appeal to, and so that's really how. By saying we're going to program on the phone, we're also saying you know, we're going to actually address a new audience, an audience that doesn't, has never coded because an audience that already codes, let's say, on a keyboard, they're typically going to see that and say, this doesn't make sense. They have a paradigm. Now, if you come to the ones who have never known anything else than a phone, it's very natural. You know, what is this thing with a keyboard? How much hand-holding has to happen in these new environments where you if someone downloads an app, it's like, well, I would say, how do I use that? Yeah, so we uh, content is key. There's a lot of content. And there's a lot of work around intelligent tutorials. And I think we don't know precisely you know, what's the best. And probably there's no students that are the same, so things are going to work sometimes or not. We do also a lot of work to please the teachers. We do work to uh, provide curriculum that are standards aligned that teachers can use to deliver the class. That's very important. So that comes out of your group as well? We work with educators to design material that a teacher would like to read, which is not what you want to read. <laughs> they have their own you know, language. Lingo. So we, we build material for teachers so that a teacher can adopt this and say, okay, I will reach all the standards I have to teach and I can do that. And this is exactly what I'm looking for. Then we also build material for the random user that's going to use the app, the random kid. So mm -hmm. small projects, maybe some guided tutorials where we tell them precisely how to drag the blocks here and there. Our latest editors have a kind of like a gallery setting where you'd go shopping for, if you go to our Minecraft editor, for example, you'll see we have, I think, 40 projects that are completely crazy and they have like shiny screenshots and then oh, I want to do a bat cave. Okay, I'll, I'll learn about the bat cave. Or I want to do like super digger. So we tease the interest of the children by doing some really cool mods, typically very small, at least to get started. So we seed the environment with a lot of people will learn just by looking at an example and then right. remixing it. So we see the environment with that. We also have tutorials that are guided where it's a very precise route. These are usually the first ones to teach you how the editor works, like how you drag things and which button to press when you're ready. In Touch Develop, we had something super advanced around that. This is still a very, very active area of research that can grow. Yeah, so yeah. there's all kinds of places to go from here. It's a very interesting space that has massive potential. How can you maximize, let's say people want to learn something online. How do you build a system that really maximizes learning for all the users? If you want to be successful, if you want to truly have a platform that helps people learn, yeah. otherwise you you know you will drop your students; they will yeah. not come back because they feel like they're losing their time. You're fighting against 
all the distractions that are available on the internet. So uh, it's a tall order to keep your, your audience Well, that's the world interested. your research is living in right now, is the distraction world. Yeah, you have to be interesting. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> they will just go to the other tab and, and go back to their, you know, best favorite activities of the day. Well, it seems yeah. like what you're doing is really interesting. You're very true. We're very true to be very interesting and have people learn and, you know, maybe change some lives along the way. Yeah. Changing lives is good. To learn more about Dr. Pelidoalo's work with MakeCode and other innovative things Microsoft Research is bringing to your kids' classroom, visit microsoft.com research.